Please turn to Ephesians, which is one of my favorite books describing that grace that we have sung about. And I want to read from chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and I pray that as I uh, preach this Word, that You would take the feebleness of man and that You would uh, cause uh, it to go into the background and vanish. And Father, that Your glory, the glory of Your grace, would shine richly in our hearts. We pray that You would enable us to live this out, mix it in our hearts by faith. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. My uh, father years ago told me a story about a friend of his who had taught a monkey to chase away flies while he was uh, sleeping. They were in tsetse fly country, and because of the danger of sleeping sickness, he was pretty proud of this accomplishment. And so he'd take his afternoon siestas, and this monkey would just be waving away the uh, the flies. But there was this one particularly pesky fly that just did not seem to want to be chased away. And this uh, monkey, being the uh, problem solver that it was, went into problem solving mode, let the fly land on the master's nose, and he picked up a, a rock and with a swift movement killed the fly. <laughs> now, you've got to hand it to him. His method was very effective. But because he deviated from the master's instructions, <laughs> there were some consequences that weren't too cool. Now, in this chapter, God is giving some simple instructions as to how we can grow in holiness. And we, uh, thinking we're wiser than God, many times we will come up with our own ideas of how we're going to conquer this sin. And I know uh, when I was younger, 
I struggled in many different ways trying to overcome different sins and I just wasn't always following the biblical blueprints. Some people will look to this method or that method. They will look to some of the psychological uh, 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 methods that are out there and they don't have long-term success. But what is really sad is that they will then develop as part of their theology why it is the normal Christian life to have this helpless attitude towards sin that Romans chapter 7 describes where Paul talks about uh, him doing the things that he did not want to do. And he just felt really frustrated. And they're never able to get into Romans chapter 8 where Paul describes how he had victory in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe Romans 7 is indeed talking about believers. Uh, Jay Adams points out, though, that the debate should not be, is Romans 7 describing unbelievers pre-conversion or is it describing believers? He says where the debate, debate really ought to lie is, yeah, it is amongst believers, but is it describing believers who are, uh, this is just their normal course of their life, or is it describing believers who are immature? and who have failed to find out how to overcome their habits. Uh, Jay Adams, I think, has a brilliant argument that what this is talking about is the habits of sin in our lives. He talks about sin dwelling in our members. Now, when you think about sin dwelling in our members, a lot of people get confused about that. How can it dwell in my arms and in my facial expressions and things like that? Which is exactly what Paul is saying. Do we catch sin like an infection? And the answer is no, we don't. The reason it can dwell in our members is because sin, which is an action, and it's, it's an attitude, it's an action of our will, sin has become such a habitual way of life that we begin to do it without even thinking. See, a habit is something that is so routine that it is just programmed into your nervous system. You just do it without thinking. And habits are very difficult to overcome whether it's habits in sports or habits in uh, other areas. And uh, the only way that we can overcome the habits that we have developed in life is if we follow God's pattern. Now, today's sermon is just going to be a bare-bones introduction to the topic, but hopefully it will give you enough information that it's going to give you some hope for holiness. And this is the whole purpose of the sermon this morning. It's to fire you up with faith and hope and enthusiasm. And I want to start with just some general principles here, which I've divided into two parts, a theology of hope and actions of hope. And the reason I'm backing up a little ways and doing this is because there are people who are so discouraged with failure after failure and dealing with their sins that they just feel like giving up. Uh, They don't have any hope that they can overcome their sins. And what I would encourage you to do is to read and reread the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is such an encouraging book. Uh, First of all, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul tells us that we've got God on our side. He has not only predestined our salvation, but in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So he's saying the Father is on your side. He's rooting for you. He's got a plan for you. He's on your side. In chapter 2, Paul tells us we've got the Son on our side. Paul tells us that His blood purchased the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us. What encouraging words. And then verse 8 says that uh, because of what Jesus accomplished, He not only saved us by grace, but the next verse says, 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the holiness that the Father planned from eternity past, Jesus Christ uh, purchased. He made it possible to achieve. He too is rooting for you. We've got the Son on our side. Then chapter 3 tells us we've got the Spirit on our side. What the Spirit does is He fulfills the Father's plans and He takes all of the things that Jesus purchased with His death and as we by faith lay claim to them, He works those things within our lives. In verse 16, He says that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His power in the inner man. And as you keep reading in chapter uh, three there, he keeps piling promise upon promise that God will do, for example, exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. Now, hopefully just reading those promises, there's a little glimmer of hope within you that you can indeed uh, accomplish this holiness that God has called you to because the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is on your side. He's rooting for you. He's giving to you everything that you need for life and godliness. Now, there's one more aspect to this uh, theology of hope that gives us confidence that we can gain the victory, and that is that we've got the church on our side. And that's chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now, some months ago, I preached on that at length when we were dealing with the whole issue of community. Uh, what does community life look like? God made the body to be part of the process of our growth, it says, so that we should no longer be children. Verse 13. But we should be a body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share according to it causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So the whole book of Ephesians is a book that gives us a theology of hope. Paul's conclusion to this fantastic theology of hope is that he calls us to have actions consistent with that hope. We have a responsibility. And so, beginning in verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, and the therefore is referring to that theology of hope. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. The first responsibility that you have is to believe the theology of hope and based on that to make a commitment you are going to go into the battle and you're going to win this battle make a commitment that uh, you're going to do what God has called you to do stop walking like the world start walking in Christ there can't be any rationalization because James says if you're double-minded about this well, I'll try it if it works, and if it's too hard, maybe I'll go back to what I was doing before. If you're double-minded, James says, you have no faith, I'm not going to grant you anything. And we need the faith to be able to claim from Christ all that He has promised to us in that theology of hope. Now, let me give you an example. My father knew a, a man up in Canada who was constantly lamenting the fact that he would uh, go into the movie theaters to watch X-rated movies. And he was wanting to know, why am I always struggling with this? And my dad said, well, first of all, why are you even... Well, he said, you know, it's just like a magnet drawing me into that movie theater. I can't help it. I just get pulled right in there. And he said, why are you going by that? He says, well, I have to get from work to home. He said, yeah, but why are you going down that street instead of going down this street? And the man began to realize, you know, I guess I'm not being serious. I'm going by there trying to pretend that I'm fighting against sin, but playing with sin. 
I'm getting close. And then when he got close, of course, he would fall into sin. And so we need to make a total commitment. The second part is that we must commit to renewing our minds through meditation on Scripture and the affirmation of Scripture. Uh, Verses 17 through 18 describe the futility of the pagan mind uh, that embraces independent thinking, the darkening their mind. Basically, they don't want to know the truth. Uh, They want comfort. What degree of truth will help them find? But they, they do not want to know the whole truth. Now, contrast that with verses 21 through 23. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus... And verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Uh, When I was 19 years old, I struggled and struggled to gain purity of thought. And I've shared this with you before, but uh, my friends would tell me, Phil, just don't worry about it. It's impossible for a man to have pure thoughts. And uh, they said, as far as you're being feeling bad about your dreams, everybody has bad dreams. Just don't worry about it. Well, I just would not accept what they said was to be normal. And I went to my pastor in Three Hills and he said to me, oh, yes, absolutely. You do need to be working against this. And what you need to start by doing is renewing your mind so that your mind has the capacity to be able to resist. And he told me, start by memorizing scripture. And he gave me a number of different scriptures that were the opposite of what I was dealing with. And he said, once you've memorized them cold, go over and over and over those scriptures till you have sucked them dry. What it will do is it will wear down the old thought patterns. And every time a temptation comes, you're developing a new habit. The instant it comes, here comes the scripture, thinking God's thoughts uh, after him. And he told me to pray the scriptures, affirm them as statements of faith. Um, Use these as declarations against Satan, declarations against your flesh. And so he said, do just like Jesus did. Whenever a temptation comes, say, get behind me, Satan. I am not going to think that because God's word says. And then begin quoting uh, the scriptures uh, that he had given. And I've mentioned in the past that my temptations got worse. And he said, you've got to persevere. It takes time. But not only that, Satan will test you. He'll see if you're weak. If he can find weaknesses where you give up, man, he'll just keep going at that weakness all the time. But if you persevere, eventually he will give up. And I've shared how the Lord gave me not only complete purity in my mind during the day, he cleaned up my dream life. In the rare times that there were temptations in my dream, man, I was confronting that temptation in my dream. And that gave me such hope and such encouragement that I began applying the same principle of the renewing of my mind to fear and envy and anger and other evils that I was facing. And I found meditation on God's word to be such a powerful tool to renew my mind and give me holiness. When we were driving uh, to the wedding yesterday, Jonathan asked me a question. He said, why does the scripture place salvation in connection with our head when it's talking about armor? Because it talks about the helmet of our salvation, right? And he knew the answer, but we were having a, a, a dialogue here that our salvation is not simply an experience. Our salvation is a thing that we believe. It comes through the renewing of our mind, but it's not just our initial salvation. The word uh, salvation in the Greek indicates we are continually being saved from our sins, being saved from 
uh, Satan's attacks and things like that. And it's through the renewing of our minds. Our minds are critical. That's why Satan goes for the mind. And it's critical that we renew our minds. In Joshua 1.8, God promises, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, I've had, I literally had people say to me, Phil, that is just so simplistic. There's got to be a more complicated answer to that. But actually, these people, uh, they don't have the self-discipline to actually do, you know, to go through and meditate like this. If they did, they would find success. And I would say this is a faith principle. God's given to us things that are not complex. They're simple, simple enough for a child to follow. And he says, will you believe me that through the renewing of your mind, you're going to have success in your battle against holiness? If you really believe me, you're going to start memorizing Scripture like crazy and you're going to start meditating on those Scriptures so that your mind is renewed. Here's another promise. Psalm 1 promises success for holiness if we will renew our minds through meditation. And in verse 1, he starts by saying, stop educating yourself in the world's wisdom. You know, and don't fill your mind with all of the things that come from the world, whether it's in school or whether it's in the media or whatever. But then in verse two, he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night. And what's the result? Blessing, prosperity, fruit, righteousness. Do not underestimate the power that comes through the renewing of your mind, through meditation on Scripture. Paul told Timothy, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. I know some of this is uh, on that section on meditation is, is review for some of you, but you're not practicing it. So I'm going to keep reviewing and reviewing until you start doing the memorization and the meditation on Scripture because I want your holiness and there aren't shortcuts uh, to holiness. Third step, as you renew your mind through meditation on Scripture and theology, ask God to give you a sensitivity of conscience. Verse 19 describes the natural state of our hearts as being past feeling, being past feeling. What's happened there is their consciences have got to a state where it really doesn't bother them anymore. Maybe it used to bother them when they sinned. Eh, It didn't affect them at all. And, you know, even though when a person is regenerated, he becomes a new believer, there is a renewed sensitivity of the conscience. Over time, Christians can get to the place where their consciences are past feeling. It really doesn't bother them anymore. In fact, I've had people tell me I will confront them about a sin that they're engaged in. And they will say, oh, well, the spirit's not convicted me of that. My response is, well, get convicted. You know, what's wrong with your conscience? The Bible here clearly says that it's a sin. There's something wrong with your conscience, not with the Bible. So align it to the Bible. In fact, uh, this is one of the reasons why I did a four-part series back in 2000, 2001, something like that, on the conscience, how to develop a healthy conscience. This is a conscience that does not feel troubled at all when you're doing things that the Bible says are okay. Even if others say it's not okay, your conscience isn't bothered. But your conscience is very bothered, is highly bothered if you're engaging in something that is sinful. But ultimately, uh, the purpose of that series was to help us have a conscience that is without offense. Paul said, I myself 
always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Acts 24, verse 16. And I tell you, having a good conscience is a wonderful, wonderful tool uh, for developing holiness. Because what it does is it warns you instantly and keeps you from going even one inch down that slippery slope. It's a wonderful tool. Next, look to God to help you overcome your weak will. Verse 19 describes unbelievers just giving up. Now, no Christian should ever give up the battle until he has won that battle, right? If you have a weak will, what I would encourage you to do is every day say, Lord, I believe that your word can strengthen me because you have said your spirit comes and is at work in me with all of his might. And so strengthen my will. Sing that hymn we're going to end with. I take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to, me, to thee, and, and, and especially that verse, take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Another thing you can do is use your emotions to strengthen your resolve to do that which is right. I think that's the point of verse 26, to get angry over sin. Uh, during the years when I struggled with some of the sin habits that I had, I would actually pound my fist and say, no, I'm not going to blaspheme God. I am not going to give in to the sin. I'm not going to despise the riches of his grace. I would get angry with myself. Study the biblical doctrine of motivations. The Bible talks about so many different motivational factors that can help a person who wants to do right, but's having a hard time to be motivated to get up and over uh, over the hump. Uh, but don't ever settle for the pagan description in verse 19, which says they have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Man, what a sad state of affairs. And yet that's exactly the state of affairs that many Christians are in. They're so weak-willed. Why? Because they've given themselves over. They've given up. Your will can be strengthened to the point where it's no longer a struggle to resist the things that were a horrible struggle to resist before. Ask God to strengthen your will. Fifth, ask Christ daily to lead you and teach you. You don't need a pastor, you know, to call him up every, you know, couple days and, and talk with him for an hour. You've got the Holy Spirit to teach you. Verses 20 through 21. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. And I want you to notice that it doesn't say have heard about Christ. It says, if indeed you have heard him, you need to be listening to Christ speaking to you through the scriptures. And we can be so dull of hearing. Many Christians are. Now, this is one of the reasons why Jesus says uh, quite a number of times in the New Testament, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right. And I've told you in the past that implies, first of all, that there is a set of people who don't have ears, spiritual ears. So all regenerate people have been given spiritual ears, but now he's talking to the people who have spiritual ears and he says, some of you are not listening. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You can't be dull of hearing. You've got to develop this intimacy with Christ, this sensitivity to the Spirit speaking to you uh, through the Scriptures. And I want you to notice here as well that um, it doesn't say have been taught by his servants, but have been taught by him. See, if your heart desires to grow, God will open up the scriptures like crazy for you. He'll just open them up. 
<clears throat> but if you ignore his voice, he'll stop speaking to you. First Thessalonians 4.9 But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Okay, They had been taught by God through the Old Testament Scriptures. Why does Paul then have to write to them? Because they've been turning off their hearing aids. Okay, They're not listening to God. Uh, they, they, they do what a lot of people nowadays do. They'll go to the pastor. They'll go to somebody else and they'll say, is it okay if I do such and such? They already know that they shouldn't be doing it because the Spirit's convicted them. So why are they coming to me? Or why are they coming to you? Well, they're hoping you'll come up with a good reason why they can rationalize, you know, and not do the thing. The Spirit's already convicted. But we've got to listen uh, to God. Jesus said of the new covenant people, they shall all be taught by God. John 6, verse 45. And I think there's too many people who depend upon man rather than depending upon the Lord to teach them. 1 John 2, verse 27. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in Him. Now, that didn't stop John from teaching them, right? He taught them just like I'm teaching you here. But John's reminder is that part of their problem is they're not listening to Christ. You don't need an intermediary. Develop intimacy with Christ. The sixth step is what J. Adams speaks of as dehabituation. That's just a fancy word for putting off old habits. That's all it means, dehabituation. Uh, and we have to do this all the time uh, when you're learning a sport. Uh, you can talk to the copes and you, you, you'll find out that it does take a while if you've developed a bad habit to get rid of that bad habit and to put on a new habit. So there's dehabituation, which is saying no to the old man in terms of our spiritual walk. Verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man. I'll be giving you some examples in a moment of how to do that. Then put on the new man. Rehabituation, you probably guessed, is just a fancy word for developing new habits. This is saying yes to your new identity with Christ. That's the new man. Verse 24, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And I, I, I want you to notice that the new man's already created. It's already created. We have to affirm it, consciously adopt it. And I've already given you an example of putting off the bad habits of the bad thoughts that have come in. You're putting on new thought habits. But I'll give you some other examples in a moment of how we do this. Eighth, be convinced that sins will indeed get worse and worse if you don't conquer them. Verse 22 describes the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. It never stays the same. It grows corrupt. Uh, and it does so in many deceitful ways. Uh, the deceitful lust is basically saying, this is going to be so cool, this is going to be so fun if you do this sin. And uh, then it turns around and it kills you, destroys you. Uh, and we have this tendency to think it's such a little thing. And I'll just ask forgiveness after anyway because I'm covered by God's grace. But it's a deceitful lust. It's like a monster. If you starve it, it will grow weaker and weaker. But if you feed it, man, it'll become so strong, it'll become your master. You've got to be convinced sin is dangerous. You never fool with it. Ninth, be convinced that God will come through as you step out in faith. Verse 24 starts with our responsibility. It says that you put on the new man, 
And then the verse talks about God coming through, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Any holiness that we come up with ourselves is a fake holiness. All true righteousness is created by God and created according to God. And so that's the process. It may seem a lot less sophisticated than some of the psychological processes that are out there. But let me ask you this. How many successes are there? Just take one example amongst Alcoholics Anonymous. Zero. You say, no, wait a minute. They don't, they don't get drunk anymore. Yes, but you go into any Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and they will affirm over and over again that once they're an alcoholic, they will always be an alcoholic. They have not conquered the root principle. What they've done is they've managed to keep themselves distanced enough that they don't fall you know, into drunkenness, but they've not really conquered the issue. The Bible goes way beyond that. It goes root and branch after the sin, takes out the old, puts on new habits. And uh, it says things like this, but you such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Now, let's quickly just take the remainder of our time looking at two or three. We're not going to look at all of them, but two or three of Paul's examples of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. What does it look like? Verse 25 says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the first example he gives, put off lying, put on honesty. And the word therefore just deals with everything that we've looked at, all the provisions of the Lord and our responsibilities. But replacing lying with honesty also involves repentance and resolve of heart. And you can see that in the words putting away. That's in the errorist tense, which means it's a definitive once and for all determination. You're going to deal with this. You're not going to play soldiers. You're not going to be half hearted about this. You are going to deal with this. You're going to hate the sin so much and you've learned to appreciate holiness so much. You're going to say to the Lord, Lord, no matter how long it takes, I am fighting against this fortress. I want it to come down. And uh, if you are only doing it because you've been caught lying and you're kind of embarrassed and you have to put in some work to try to say, OK, I'm going to, I'm going to really work at, you know, making these people convinced that uh, I'm not a liar any longer. It will fail you. It'll let you down because it's not the sufficient motivation. Point three, if you're truly to put away lying, you're going to have to correctly identify lying. And some people have lied so long and with such sophistication, they don't even know when they're telling the truth and when they're lying. And I've known a number of people who are along these lines. Now, let me give you some examples. Lying is not simply perjury or telling your mom that you didn't take the cookie when you did take it. Uh, it is also flattery. According to Romans 16, verse 18, some forms of joking are lies. Proverbs 26, uh, verses 18 to 19 says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. He says, man, you're like a madman. You're, you're doing all kinds of destruction and devastation when you do that. Now, how many times do we use that kind of humor? You know, we'll say a falsehood and then we'll say, we're just lying. It trivializes the truth. Micah 6, verse 11, treats cheating customers as a form of lying. Colossians 2, 18 and 23, treats pretending to be humble as lying. 
Philippians 4, 15 to 18, treats false motives as lying. And it uses the word pretense there. Failing to keep your promises. Unreliability. You know, how many times are, can people not really trust us? You know, we're unreliable when we've made commitments. Reneging on a contract. They're all forms of lying. Guy McGraw outlined some famous American fibs. The check is in the mail. <laughs> right? I'll start my diet tomorrow. We service what we sell. Give me your number and the doctor will call you right back. Money cheerfully refunded. One size fits all. This offer limited to the first 100 people who call in. Your luggage isn't lost. It's only misplaced. Probably experienced that a few times. Leave your resume and we'll keep it on file. This hurts me more than it hurts you. I just need five minutes of your time. Yeah, right. <laughs> your table will be ready in a few minutes. Open wide. It won't hurt a bit. <laughs> Let's have lunch sometime. It's not the money. It's the principle. And you could go on. Our culture is filled with lies and half-truths. Now, uh, a lot of people consider them to be white lies. You know, they're innocent enough. But the Scripture says a Christian ought not to be engaged in them. Uh, in the December 2006 edition of the Journal of Human Values, I was reading a fascinating discussion of a sting operation that occurred by the Port Authority in New York. And I don't know why they did the sting. I think there was probably wondering how much... Uh, maybe they were having bad employees or something. But... Uh, in the journal, it says they ran career-sized job advertisements in local newspapers with prospects for very good pay and benefits for electricians with proven mastery of the Sontag connector. Despite the fact that no Sontag connector ever existed, they were swamped with 170 applicants, all claimed familiarity with and even mastery of the Sontag connector. Fifty-five applicants pushed the issue even further. They claimed to be certified or licensed Sontag experts. Of this bold 55, more than half claimed to have 10 years or more experience working on and with Sontag connectors and more often than not, provided a list of sites and projects chronicling their experience and adding realism to their fictitious resume. The management at Port Authority was confirmed in their suspicion that resume doctoring was no small matter. It was engaged in not by a few bad apples, but revealed itself as a mainstream phenomenon, unquote. And we really do need to evaluate to what degree do we fudge the truth like the American culture does. But Paul goes on. He doesn't just tell us to stop fibbing. He tells us to develop habits of truth telling on the very issues that we would have been formerly tempted to lie about. OK, so we're broadcasting what we would have been tempted to hide. Verse 25, let each one speak truth with his neighbor. Now, the speak truth is the ongoing present tense. So he's talking about developing a habit of truth-telling. And so, just using the examples we've looked at, if you were an applicant to the Port Authority and you desperately needed a job, yeah, you'd put your application in. You'd say, well, I don't have any experience with Sontag connectors and I don't even know what they are, but I'm a fast learner and I'd love to take this job if you'd be willing to teach me about Sontag connectors. Or if you're the one that dribbled on the toilet seat, well, we won't go that, uh, down that one. But admitting and saying, okay, I'll take corrective action. Um, if you said, I was only joking, uh, going back and saying, well, you know, I did have this in the form of a joke, but I did intend a jab. And I want to ask your forgiveness because I really am trying to develop 
a habit of truth-telling in my life. Please forgive me. When I was growing up, I had a, a habit of lying. But doing the truth-telling part, as much as it just felt like it was going to kill me, it really, over time, began to conquer this temptation to even lie. Uh, and I think I, I've sh- shared this maybe even a couple of times before, but when I was in 12th grade, I cheated on my trigonometry exam. I think I've shared it. A couple of nods out there. And that's a form of lying, isn't it? It's pretending you know something that you do not know. And I felt guilty over the next couple of years. And the Spirit of God was really convicting me uh, deeply of this. Made me miserable. And finally, I confessed it. But when I wrote to my high school that I had done this, boy, was I nervous. I thought I was already in college. I thought I'd have to leave college and take that math course over again. And people would think poorly of me. But I wrote them and I said, you know, I have sinned against God. I've sinned against you. And I've really sinned against myself as well on this. And I want to ask your forgiveness. And I want to tell you I'm willing to take that math course over again. And uh, it was such a relief to be able to, uh, to get past the, uh, that whole thing. But what I did, because it was pride and fear that motivated me many times to lie, is I would give myself homework to try to undermine those motivations. For example, when I would get A's on my exams, I wouldn't tell anybody what my grades were. When I would do poorly on an exam, I would tell all kinds of people uh, what a poor job I had done on this exam. And it was to crucify the pride, undo some of the motivations uh, to do the lying. And I do need to give a little bit of a caution here because there are some ways that it's inappropriate to... Uh, confess to one another and to broadcast the truth-telling. For example, if you lust after some guy, don't confess that to him. Okay? If you have an accountability partner, you could go to that person and say, look, I'm having a real problem and I want to watch my eyes. I want to watch how I talk with this person and I want you to be an accountability partner and warn me when you see any danger signals coming up. That kind of confession is good. But we've got to have the kind of of love for each other and care for each other where we're going to feel that we can do this. In fact, that's the next point there. Uh, This assumes vulnerability to the body. It says, for we are members of one another. He's explaining why we shouldn't be ashamed to be able to share in this way with each other. Why this is a good thing. Why we should not put a facade on our face. Now, this does not mean wearing the heart on our sleeve but we should be much more open and vulnerable. And if the whole body senses that we're for each other, we love each other, love covers a multitude of sins, they're going to be much more likely to come to you as an accountability partner and say, you know, I'm really struggling with this sin. Could you please pray with me? Could you help me? And uh, I want to overcome this. And I've seen many people who have taken these steps conquer their their habit of lying or help their children conquer it. I've put together a little bit more details in a booklet that's on the back table. If you need more help, you can look at that or you could come uh, for uh, for some counseling. The second example that Paul gives is to replace a careless attitude towards sin with righteous anger. Now, there's a lot of people who misinterpret that verse there. They think that that verse is telling us that sin, I mean, that anger is sin. We need to get rid of it. That's not what it's saying. Later on in verse 31, it does say that. That's a sinful anger that it says we're going to put off. But here we're commanded to get angry. It says, be angry 
and do not sin. And so this is addressing the sin of failing to get angry when we should. As Guy McGraw said, uh, we tolerate what we should be angry at and get angry at what we should tolerate. When was the last time you got mad about sin? And I would add, when was the last time you got mad at yourself for sin? Because you're the one who stepped right in the trap. You're the one who's letting Satan take advantage of you. That the next verse says, you know, you're giving opportunity to Satan. You're the one who's lackadaisical. Get mad at yourself. You need to take it very, very seriously. And uh, you need to tell yourself, Phil, stop it. Stop thinking that way. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. This is exactly what the psalmist did in Psalm 42. He talks to himself. He says, Why are you so cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. So everything was going wrong. He was tempted to fall into the sin of self-pity, but he catches himself short and he says, Self, stop it. Don't give in to that self-pity. I am going to hope in Christ. I am going to praise Christ, even though I don't feel like praising Christ. So he's grabbing himself by the scruff of the neck and moving forward. And there's a lot more that could be said about uh, this uh, sinful, uh, this righteous anger that Jesus expressed himself. But just there are times where we need to get angry with ourselves. Now, let me just finish off with one more example, and that's verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Now, J. Adams asks the question, when is a thief no longer a thief? And the answer uh, that people usually give is when he stops stealing. That's the wrong answer, because there could be all kinds of reasons why a thief would stop stealing. You know, maybe his last heist was a million dollars and he's set up for life. He doesn't need to steal any longer, right? But he still has a thief's heart. Uh, Maybe the last time he stole, he almost got caught and he's really nervous. It's going to take him two months, you know, to get the courage up to steal again. Uh, That does not mean he doesn't have a thief's heart. And that doesn't mean he's not going to at some point let that express himself in, in stealing. Paul indicates that you know a thief is no longer a thief when he's able by God's grace to do two things. And I want to use a a counseling case that I had years ago to illustrate those uh, two areas. And I've done this with many, many people, taken people through these steps. But because this person wasn't known by Trinity Presbyterian and none of you guys, my wife doesn't know him, I think it's a safe illustration to use. Guy came to me with two problems, bulimia and uh, what he called kleptomania. And over the course of years, he had shoplifted hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of merchandise, and he was just desperate to get a fix. He'd been to all kinds of psychologists, uh, been to many, many different counselors, and he just did not seem to be able to get any help. What we did with him is, first of all, we relabeled his sins. I told him, look, this is not kleptomania. You're a thief, okay? Not a kleptomaniac. Kleptomaniac is trying to relabel sin as a disease. Now, God has never promised that he's guaranteed that you're going to be cured of all diseases. But he does guarantee that you can overcome this sin habit. And so we're going to call this sin. That will give you some hope. 
And then the next thing, we, we made a plan of how to tell these stores of what he has stolen from them and the plan of how to pay back these stores. We looked at spiritual warfare. There was a few other things. But the root and the heart of everything that we did followed this two-step plan that the Apostle Paul used. Now, in this verse, Paul reinforces a lifestyle that takes away the motivations for theft. So what he's basically doing, he's getting behind the sin. He's saying, what is it that's motivating you to steal? He's getting behind it and he's destroying those motivations. Here is three potential motivations. Laziness, wanting something for nothing. Second one, greed, not being satisfied with what you have. Another motivation, covetousness, wanting what someone else has. And all of those motivations can be eroded and can be broken down if you will make as a habit what Paul is talking about here. There were two steps. There was a certain kind of labor. There was a certain kind of giving. First of all, the labor. <clears throat> Paul says, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good. The word for labor is kapiato. Uh, and it's a word that means strenuous labor that produces fatigue. It's a sweaty labor. It's a miserable labor, okay? And to make sure you don't miss the point, he says, working with his hands what is good. The second part of the equation is giving away to those who have need the very things that you have labored for so difficultly. Now, it's not hard to give away something you've stolen, okay? But it is hard if you have worked and slaved to be able to achieve this thing, you're going to treasure it a lot more. To give that away is much more difficult. So I asked this guy, what is the most distasteful job that you can think of? What is the most difficult job that you can think of? Well, without any hesitation, he said mowing yards. And his wife agreed. <laughs> she he did not like mowing yards. So I said, okay. Every time you are so much as tempted to steal something when you are in a store, I want you to go out. I want you to get a mowing job from your neighbors and your friends. And if you need more mowing jobs, we'll supply people from our church that you can mow the yard from. And during the whole time that you are mowing their yards to earn up the money, I want you to be going over and over the scriptures that you're to be memorizing here and asking God to work those scriptures into your heart to give you a hatred for stealing, to give you a love for giving and charity, to give you a love for work and hard labor. And once you have earned up the money to be able to buy that merchandise, I want you to take that money, go to the store buy the merchandise, and then you're going to give that away, right away, to a person who has need. And we'll tell you who to give it to, and it's not even going to be a person that you know. So they're not going to even, you're not even going to get the credit for it. You're just going to give it away. And I tell you, when I gave them this homework, you would have thought that I asked them to step off of the Empire State Building. <laughs> this was so hard. And the first few times that he did this, he said it felt like something was dying inside of him. It just felt like his heart was being ripped out to do this. But he said over a period of time, his heart began being liberated by God and God actually began to give him a love for manual labor and a love for poor people, a love for giving these things to others. Now, I'm not going to share with you how he uh, overcame bulimia, but this was the first time in his life he had gained victory over sin. Why? Because he was following God's method. He wasn't taking the stones and, you know, smashing the fly. He was doing it the way God had said to do it. And it gave him new hope 
for holiness and it gave him a new zeal for holiness in other areas of his life. This is my desire for you, that you would have a renewed desire and zeal for holiness. Why? Because the whole Trinity is on your side. You've got the church on your side. You've already got, at least in a rudimentary fashion, some of the blueprints that Paul has laid out as to how you can conquer sin. And God wants you to tackle every high thing and every fortress that Satan has established in your life and to believe every single one of those fortresses can be taken down. Now, you're not going to be sinless in this life. But you can take down all fortresses. You can develop new habits where what used to be easy to sin is now going to be much more difficult. It's going to do the, the, the righteous thing just as easily as you used to do the sinful thing. And let me tell you something. God loves it when you battle. He is glorified when you take down these fortresses. And so it is. Uh, don't be discouraged. Have hope for holiness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage that does give such hope and encouragement, and I pray that each one of your people, uh, their hearts would be stirred up with faith, with hope, uh, with uh, a love for holiness, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And Father, that you would satisfy that hungering with uh, producing in them that which they could not produce in themselves. Create in them uh, more and more this new man, this new identity with Christ, this new power that flows from his throne. And I pray that as they see a victory after victory, that they would go from strength to strength, from faith to faith, and from glory to glory. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.